As we continue in this season of Easter, we hear Luke's sequel. Jesus, having been raised from the dead, joins this couple on the road, explaining the scriptures to them, but their eyes are kept from recognizing him. Listen to what happens next. Luke 24, beginning at verse 28. As they came near the village to which they were going, Jesus walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it it is almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. While they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. He said to them, Why are you frightened? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While in their joy they were disbelieving and still wondering, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. My earliest childhood memory of Easter had nothing to do with Jesus being raised from the dead. It had nothing to do with church, for that matter. We went occasionally to the Catholic Church down the street, so I'm guessing that maybe we showed up on an Easter. I just don't remember. My earliest childhood memories of Easter were dying eggs with my mom and hunting for eggs and see if the Easter bunny would bring any with the basket of green plastic grass. And, and I remember that my mom loved those hollow milk chocolate Easter bunnies that she would put in the freezer, and I would sneak some out, you know, and bite one of those ears, and they were delicious. My first taste of Easter was a bunny, a chocolate bunny, not bread and wine. My earliest religious memories of Easter were not until I was 19 years old, freshman in college. Like all of us, we come to faith in stages, but there was this three-week period where something happened. 
The kind of magic moment where I just really surrendered to it all came on the Sunday after Easter. So in a way, this is an anniversary for me 45 years later. But in those previous Sundays, I managed to not stay out too late drinking and to get up and to go to church. On the Sunday before Easter, I went to a random church. I guess it was Palm Sunday, but I don't remember a thing about it. On the next Sunday, Easter Sunday, I found a different church randomly down the street, and I went. And it was like visiting another planet. I had no clue what this Jesus and Bible and God thing was all about. All I remember is several women had beautiful hats on, which they did last week as well here, and it's a great tradition. But thinking back on that, I recalled a piece by the poet Anne Sexton. It's called Protestant Easter, Eight Years Old. Here are a few lines. Once I thought the bunny rabbit was special and I hunted for eggs. That was when I was seven. I'm grown up now. Now it's really Jesus. I think that he rose, but I'm not quite sure. Jesus was on that cross. They pounded nails into his hands. After that, well, after that, everyone wore hats. The important thing for me is that I'm wearing white gloves. I totally get that poem because I totally didn't get Easter. I had no clue what was going on. It is a kind of strange story the way Luke tells it. The women go to the tomb to anoint the body. They discover it's empty. They come back. They share the news that's given to them that he's been raised from the dead. And then the resurrected Jesus joins this couple on the road. They don't recognize him. But when they get to the house, when he picks up the bread, suddenly their eyes are opened and they recognize him. And then he vanishes. And then he comes back. And later he'll vanish again. What are we supposed to make of this? Now, you could stop with last week's message and say, well, it's about the resurrection of Jesus. But Luke doesn't stop there. He doesn't ask the question, is it historical or hysterical? He simply goes on to the sequel. And the sequel is what happens next. In a way, we're like the readers. The readers are like these male disciples. So what, what, what's, what's next? What, what do we do now? Part of the problem is with how we read the Gospels in the first place. Not just Luke, but the Gospels. In many ways, we pick them up thinking, well, they're just an ancient kind of biography. You know, on Tuesday, Jesus did this, and on Wednesday, he did that. And the idea then would be we're transported back to the 30s when Jesus walked on that road to Emmaus. Like the Gospels were somehow clear glass taking us back to the time of Jesus. But they're not clear glass. They're more like stained glass. Luke writes 50 years later when his community, what we now call a church, gathers every Sunday. And so we're to hear that story anew. Here's an analogy. Imagine a novelist living in Ukraine. She and her family have fled. They've made it to Germany because she has a writer friend there. And after a while, she says, I need to write about the war. But she sets her story during the regime of Stalin. 
it's set in the middle of the 20th century, but anybody reading it now would have to hear some kind of critique of Putin. That's the way the Gospels work. 50 years later, we're not really back in Jesus' time, we're in Luke's time when they gather. And so you have these glimpses of what we would call worship now. On the road, he, he preaches a sermon of sorts. In the house, he breaks bread, but it's more than that. You heard it. He says to them, peace be with you. That's why we start worship service by saying, greet one another with signs of peace. That's where we got it. We didn't make it up. It came from Jesus. And then he commissions them to go forward and, and to tell the news of forgiveness of sins, and not just for your, your friends, but for all the nations. This is where we got it from. But Luke's story is not just commentary on worship. I think in some ways it's what the rabbis call a midrash. It's a story about a story because I think Luke has a scripture passage in mind. You know, for him, the scriptures are what we would call Hebrew Bible or Old Testament. And I think the story he is playing with is Genesis 3 of another couple, Adam and Eve. Theologian Matthew Meyer Bolton describes it perfectly. He says, what we have there is the first worship service, but everything goes haywire. The sermon is preached by the serpent. He says, well, now, did God say such and such about the trees in the garden? And instead of talking with God or with each other, which doesn't happen, Conversation with God now gives way to conversation about God. And the first communion, well, it's when they eat the forbidden fruit and their eyes are open, but it's not a good thing because they recognize their shame. But Luke picks up these themes and does something entirely different. In the breaking of bread, their eyes are opened and they're not ashamed. They recognize the risen Christ. And then, give yourself an A-plus if you caught this, and then he opens their minds to understand the Scriptures. Opens their eyes at the table and opens their minds in the sermon. These would become known as the pillars of Christian worship. For thousands of years now, worship's been built on these two pillars, word and table, sermon and supper. Before I joined the faculty at St. Paul's School of Theology, I already knew about one of the past presidents, Bill McIlvaney. I knew about him because of a book he'd written. It's called Eating and Drinking at the Welcome Table. And he has this thought experiment. It goes like this. If for the rest of your life on Sundays in church, you could have sermon but no supper, or supper but no sermon, which would you choose? Don't tell me, I don't want to know but you don't have to pick. That's the beauty of it. We get both of these things. And both of these things have changed your life and mine. On that Sunday 45 years ago, the preacher said something. I don't remember what, but somehow those words opened a gate that had been closed. Here's a, an image I used to share with students. Imagine it's a beautiful Sunday afternoon. You have friends over to grill. It's been a long winter. The kids are playing in the yard. And then 
You hear it, this blood-curdling scream. It's not good. A child has fallen off the swing set and a bolt has impaled into this child's skull and you rush to the doctor, to the emergency room, and you wait in that room called waiting. And a clock ticks and a TV plays something and magazines are unread and it, it seems like days. And finally the doctor comes out, takes off that mask and says, I'm sorry, we did everything we could. And you don't just understand those words, you feel them at a cellular level. But imagine that the doctor takes off the mask and says, everything's going to be fine. That's what the women said on the first Easter. Everything's going to be fine. And some 20 years later and 20 years back from now, I remember being at a table like this in Fayetteville, Arkansas, when my eyes were opened. And in a way, what we say at this table every week is, everything's going to be fine. If you know church history, eventually music came to be a part. And instead of two pillars, we, we ended up with a three-legged stool of sermon and supper and song. And God uses those things to raise us up. Some Sundays in the sermon, there's a story or there's a, a line in the scripture. Maybe it's a piece of music or a song, the Hallelujah Chorus. Other weeks, it's just a little square of bread and an ounce of juice, and yet somehow God uses it to raise us up. There is one other thing in this text. I, I hinted at it, that in the Genesis story, the community is it's mangled. It, it's broken. But in this case, it's restored. First thing they say, we're not our hearts burning. The, the communion is there. Communion with Christ, communion with each other. I read this week that of the people who would define themselves as regular churchgoers, 21% have not yet returned. Will they? I don't know. What will church look like post-pandemic? What does it look like post-Easter? There's going to be so many studies written by scholars on the effects of the pandemic on organized religion. I will not be writing one of those, but I have a testimony. The last verse in this text that we read says, you are witnesses of these things. So here's my witness. Here's my testimony. I know that on Sundays, the spirit of the risen Christ shows up. And so do we. And those things raise us up. That's my testimony. You're a witness of this thing too. What have you seen on the Sundays of your journey? 